to ask you guys right now to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. The title of the message today is simply Love One Another. Love One Another. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles, I just want to encourage you guys uh, to keep on keeping on. And so uh, we are in mid-November. Next week, we are going to start the Upper Room Discourse in chapters 14 through 17. Guess how many verses we're getting through next week, by the way? Three. (laughs) Three verses. It's about heaven. I mean, we got to hit the brakes and talk about heaven, man. We're going to be there a lot longer than we are here, right? And so we're going to talk about heaven next week. Encourage you guys to invite your friends. But today, we are going to finish up chapter 13, which is um, going to be verses 18 through 38. Love one another. Now, if you're new to Calvary, um, you are a welcome guest. We want to encourage you to get your gift on the way out today, straight, straight through those doors at the Next Steps area. Uh, thanks so much for coming. I hope you come back next week. Feel free to pull the Bible up on your smartphone or mobile device. We are a uh, church that teaches expositionally. What that means is we just go through the Bible verse by verse. And so I encourage you guys to follow along in John 13 today. And um, if you're ready to pray, we're going to go ahead and do that. And so, Father, we humble our hearts before you. We thank you that you're our Abba Father through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those of us who've turned to you in repentance and faith, that we are cleansed by the blood that you, Jesus, came when we were in desperate need of salvation, when we were going our own way and doing our own thing and headed to an awful place, that, Jesus, you um, do not desire any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. We're grateful that you came, Jesus, that you left your throne in heaven and came to earth and you wrapped yourself in humanity and you went to a cross and paid for our sins in full and rose again, Lord, to um, just show everybody that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, victorious over sin, death, and hell. And God, I pray that you'll help us to focus on you, our hero. God, I pray that you always help us to keep you first in our lives. You're our creator, you're our sustainer, and you're also our Savior and Lord. And so we rejoice, we rejoice in you today. We're asking that you would speak, Lord, speak to people who are watching right now, speak to people who are in this room, and the little hearts next door as they learn about Jesus on their level. And we're asking these things in the mighty name of Christ and all God's people said. All right, so it's still Thursday evening in our Bibles today. And we're just a matter of hours away from what's known as the passion of the Christ. That means that very soon Jesus is going to be betrayed, then he's going to be arrested, and then he's going to be blindfolded, and then he's going to be punched and ridiculed and spit on, locked up overnight, then they're going to turn him over to the Romans and he's going to be scourged and mocked some more, they're going to put a crown of thorns on his head, and they're going to nail him to a cross. So suffice it to say that Jesus had a lot on his mind here in the closing verses of John chapter 13. But here's what I love about Jesus, and I know you do too. Despite all that lie ahead in the next 24 hours, instead of focusing on himself, he focused on others, right? Only Jesus, knowing his time on earth was running out, the Lord chose to spend the little time that he had left pouring into his disciples. We call it the Upper Room Discourse, and it can be found in chapters 14 through 17. But as I said last week, before Jesus gives the guys there in the Upper Room at the Last Supper, before he gives them a verbal lesson, he gives them here in chapter 13 an object lesson they would never forget. We went through it last week. The King of Glory wash the feet of the disciples. And so can you believe this? The very son of God actually removed his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist, poured water into the basin, and went to his friends, God in the flesh. And he stooped down and he did the job of the lowest servant in that culture. He washed his disciples' feet. He then got back around the triclinium and he said to his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, 
and you are right, for so I am. Now look at this, because he's not just talking about, talking to um, the disciples 2,000 years ago, he's talking to modern day disciples in this room. All right, so, hey, you call me teacher, and Lord, you're right, I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, guess what? You also ought to wash one another's feet. And so is Jesus telling us that every year we should have a foot washing service? No, that's not what he's getting at at all. Those are, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think Jesus had an annual ritual in mind when he said those words. You see, here's why. Because beyond once a year, Jesus wants us to serve one another every day in many different ways. That's what he's getting at here. Foot wa hey, nobody needs anybody to wash their feet. We have indoor plumbing, we're okay. But he does want us to serve one another. And so I ended the message last week with a challenge that we wouldn't walk away and say, oh, that's a nice story, but that we would actually put feet to our faith and we would start to obey Christ's commandment because that what's just underlined is a commandment. And so Jesus is our Lord. He's our king. He just gave us a commandment. And so we're supposed to be taking this seriously. We're supposed to be doing it. And so I asked you guys, are you serving one another at home, at work, at school, and then here at the church? And so right now, seven days later, I am your teacher and I am administering your test. So I want you guys to take this test, metaphorically speaking, of course. Ask yourself, look back at the last seven days of your life and ask yourself, how did I do? How many of you guys were here last week? Raise your hand, I wanna make sure I'm, okay. So you heard the sermon. So how did you do? In other words, ask yourself right now, be real, because God sees your heart, he sees exactly what's going on. Ask yourself, did I really serve my family at home in the last seven days? How good did I do? And then ask yourself, how well did I serve my coworkers at work? Again, hey, it's a commandment. How well did I serve my coworkers at work? How well did I serve my classmates at school? I know it was kind of a half a week because of the storm, but how did I do when I was at school? And then finally, if I'm not serving, did I actually go to that church website pastor talked about and sign up to serve somewhere here in the local church? Ladies and gentlemen, here's what I wanna share with you today, and that is when it comes to our church reaching more people on the Treasure Coast, if we're really gonna be as effective as possible in doing that, we need a whole lot more people to sign up and be committed ministry partners. That's just what we need to do. And so per, what we need is we need people who are willing to invest. What does that mean? That means that they need to pick a local church. Now it may be this local church, or it may be another Bible teaching, Christ honoring church, but my encouragement to you is pick a church, and then don't just come and sit and listen to a message, start to serve, start to invest, start to give. How many of you guys know that if we put Jesus first in our life, he won't meet our greeds necessarily, he won't meet our greeds, but he'll meet our needs, right? What does he say in Matthew six thirty three? If you seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you in the context that's the needs of life. So if you actually make a decision in your life that I'm gonna put Jesus number one in my life, guess what? He's making a promise to you. I'm gonna meet all your needs. And so are you putting Christ first in every area of your life, including your finances? See, what we need here, if we're really gonna reach the treasure coast and be effective as possible, is we need people that are gonna say, this is my local church, and this is where I'm gonna give. And so I wanna encourage you to do that. And we need people to say, this is my local church and this is where I'm gonna serve regularly. We need people to do that. I counted uh, just a little while ago, we now have 27 people on church staff. That's not including the school staff across the street. They have more employees than we have here. It's all one ministry, but 27. And I think six, of, or, seven, six or seven of those are part-time. And so my point is this, ladies and gentlemen, here's what I want you to know, that our mission 
as a local church to help people become lifelong followers of Christ, that is not just the mission of 27 people on staff. Pardon the bad English, that's the mission of all y'all. Everybody here. And so I hope you will join us and make our mission your mission and you'll we'll all together do the best that we can do to get the salt out of the salt shaker and start shaking it all around the Treasure Coast and get the light from underneath the bushel and let the light of Christ shine all over the Treasure Coast because how many of you guys know that Jesus still wants to change lives today? He wants to strengthen marriages today. He wants kids to grow up in godly homes today. And we have the answer. It's called the gospel. If you want to give, Go to our website and give. If you want to serve, go to our website and serve. Now, regarding serving, look at the promise Jesus made to those who serve. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you know them. Is that what he said? No, no, no. The blessing, if you're concerned about getting a blessing, I am. I love it when God blesses me. Okay, the blessing is not in the knowing. The blessing is in the giving, the actually doing, putting feet to our faith. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And yes, you will be blessed for giving as well. That's, that's in the Bible too. And so that was the verse we left off on last week. That was the last verse. Regarding serving, if you know these things, Jesus said, blessed are you if you do them. And because we left off at verse 17, church family, tell our visitors, what verse are we starting at right now? All right, so if you're looking at John 13, 18, say amen. amen. We're still Thursday night, still Last Supper. They haven't eaten the, eaten the, 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 the oh, sorry. Wow, that was weird. We're gonna take that out of the tape, Brian, all right? And so he, let me try to talk slower here, is still at the Last Supper. They haven't eaten the dinner yet. They're kind of around the triclinium, that low U-shaped table. They're snacking, they're talking. Jesus just talked about getting blessed by serving. And then he says in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus says, I know. <laughs> I know. I'll come back to that. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says, I know. Now what we need to know is that when the eternal son of God became flesh, we call it the incarnation. By the way, we're gonna celebrate it just next month. Can you believe Christmas is almost here? We're gonna have four services all day on Christmas Eve and uh, we'll put invite cards on the seats in the future here and you'll be able to invite your friends and family because here's what I know, that even though people, a lot of people won't come to church during the year, they will come on Christmas and they will come on Easter. So please invite your friends because I'm gonna share the gospel. Okay, so um, here's what we need to know, that when the eternal son of God, right, added a human nature to his already eternally existing divine nature, he became a human being. He became a man. Fully God, fully man. Now, any religious system that says that since the incarnation, Jesus was not fully God or fully man is a cult. <laughs> that is cultic teaching. We're talking about Christology. Christology, doctrine of Christ, soteriology, doctrine of salvation, you can't mess that up. So anybody who says that Jesus was less than fully God and fully man, that's cultic teaching, okay? And so here's what I know, that after the incarnate, Jesus was always God, he's the second person of the Trinity, but ever since the incarnation, he always has been and always will be Fully God and fully man. All right, so as God, Jesus knows. He knows all things. That's called omniscience. It's one of the attributes of God. And so what we gotta understand is that at the kenosis, Philippians 2, when, 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 when Christ became a man, he did not shed himself of his divinity and he did not, did not shed himself of his divine attributes. 
He's omniscient. Now, sometimes he did choose not to access his infinite knowledge when he said, for example, um, no one knows the day or the hour of my return, not even the Son of Man, but the Father in heaven. He's speaking as a man. But here's, here's what he was doing. He was choosing not to tap into his infinite knowledge at that point for some reason. Okay, so Jesus knows. Here's my point. He knew Judas had hardened his heart against him. He knew he would betray him later that night. He knew him, that Judas would hang himself the very next morning. And that's why he said in verse 18, regarding the blessing that comes with serving, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. And then he says in verse, at the end of verse 18, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. All right, Jesus is quoting Psalm 41.9. Okay, look, 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 look at this. Um, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate my bread, or who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now you need to know that that verse right there was written about a thousand years before Christ. Okay, it was written by King David. And in that Psalm, Psalm 41, King David is lamenting the fact that a close friend and advisor, a guy by the name of Ahithophel, had, look at this, lifted his heel against King David. The idea there, lift your heel up to trip, to betray. And Ahithophel did, did that. He actually joined, he left David, close friend and advisor of David, he left to join ranks with David's rebellious son, the guy with the really long hair, Absalom. Got caught in the tree. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, please read the Old Testament. First and Second Samuel, read First and Second Samuel. It's better than any movie that's out there right now. By the way, there's not much out there. Have you noticed? How, many, how long do we spend every week doing this in the evenings? There's just nothing on, honey. And it's like, boom, boom, nothing, nothing. And then, oh, what in the world? I can't even see that. No, here's a good idea. Shut the TV off and open up First Samuel and read about the life and times of King David. Because here's what I know, when you read about him, you're gonna be able to relate. There's so many life lessons. As you read about his ups and downs, his successes and failures, as you read about his passionate heart for God, man, you will absolutely enjoy it. But Ahithophel lifted his heel against David, right? Trying to trip him up. He's counseling Absalom against David to betray David. I remember when I was playing soccer, in high school, I loved soccer. I wasn't big enough to play football, so I played soccer, and I was a crazy soccer fan and crazy, um, just loved soccer. And so I was out there one time playing for Plant High School and in South Tampa, Plant Panthers, and I'm, I'm playing, we're going up to score a goal, right? But then the defense uh, clears the ball all the way over to the other side of the field. So what, ha what happens, everybody turns around, including the ref, everybody turns around and starts chasing the ball on the other way. And so while the ref's back is turned, the defender for the other team, I can't remember what high school it was, maybe East Bay or Brandon, but anyway, this guy, I'm here, he's here, and here's what he does. Boom! Kicks my feet right out from under me. I face plant right into the dirt. I'm still mad. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, that was when I was 15. I am 56. So how, how many years ago was that? 41 years ago. I still remember. I'm still, I, maybe we just need a pause so I can forgive this guy from my heart <laughs> so God maybe can bless this sermon or something. But here's my point, he lifted his heel against me. He kicked my feet out from under me. And so that's what Ahithophel did to David. Now, here's the question. If Psalm 41.9 refers to David and Ahithophel in the context, why did Jesus say right here it refers to him and Judas? Who fulfilled that verse? Ahithophel in the Old Testament or Judas in the New Testament? And the answer is both, both. Psalm 41.9 has a dual fulfillment, which we see a lot in the Bible. And so, by the way, uh, God Questions has a great article about dual fulfillment. If you type those two words in later, you can read all about it. But near fulfillment and far fulfillment. And so 
David was a type of the son of David, Jesus Christ. David's close friend Ahithophel was the near fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. The son of David's close friend, Judas, was the far fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. Now, the parentheses, second line down, David was a type in the Old Testament of the son of David, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. That means that there were certain things about David and David's life that pointed to the son of David, Jesus Christ. There are certain things about King David that pointed to his greater son, the greatest of all, King Jesus. For example, in Psalm 22, um, Psalm 22, right? One, verse one. David is feeling like he's abandoned by God. By the way, if you're here today, and um, you remember I told you David up and down, success and failures, right? And there was times, because he was a human being, he felt abandoned by God. If you're feeling abandoned by God, here's what you need to know. That's part of the human condition. That's part of being a fallen creature. But here's what you gotta understand. God will never abandon you. I'm talking to children of God right here. Blood-bought children of God. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You may have a good day or a bad day. You may have feelings that God's everywhere or feelings that God left the building. Our feelings don't matter. What matters is the truth of God, and God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. He's not a liar, so he doesn't abandon us. He's always with us. But nonetheless, we are fallen human beings, and David is just expressing his emotions in Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, verse one, written a 1,000 years before Christ. And that's the verse that Jesus quotes at 3 p.m. or thereabouts while on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You continue to read Psalm 22, and your eyes pop out because of the amazing prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of King Jesus. Like, they cast lots for my garments. It's just crazy. Ladies and gentlemen, this book is God's word. There's hundreds of prophecies literally fulfilled already. We just gotta open it up and we gotta educate ourselves. Don't let anybody tell you that this book is just from man. No, this book is from God through men. And so my point here is that David, um, his weakness and his suffering in Psalm 22 pointed to Jesus, the man, and his weakness and suffering. And the fact that David in Psalm 22 had enemies that hated him and that ridiculed him, that points to the son of David. He had lots of enemies who hated him and who mocked him as well. And then in Psalm 41, 9, well, the truth is, David's close friend Ahithophel was the near fulfillment, but the son of David's close friend Judas was the far fulfillment. Before I leave this point, does anybody know, if you've been reading the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, 2 Samuel, does anybody know how Ahithophel died? If you do, shout it out. He hung himself. Ahithophel, this is interesting. What does Ahithophel do? He betrays David and it doesn't work out with Absalom, so he goes out and hungs, hangs himself. Judas betrays Jesus, doesn't work out. How does Judas die? He hung himself. And so if this is all making sense to you guys, just say amen. All right, we'll move on. Look at verse 19. It says, I, Jesus said, I am telling you this now, that somebody's gonna lift their heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, that I'm the one that Psalm 41 ultimately is about. So Jesus, follow this here, Jesus quotes the Psalm at the Last Supper and said that it would happen to him. Why? So that later, after Judas betrayed him, the other 11 disciples would be able to say this to one another, hey, Christ called it before it happened. And that way, instead of their faith being weakened through Judas's treachery, no, 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 no. Christ called it before it happened, and now their faith is strengthened because of Jesus' sovereignty. He knows all things. 
He knows all things about your life as well. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, I send, I send, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Okay, what in the world? Don't take it out of this context. There's a flow here. We leave the verse in its context. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he is talking about here the great commission that he would send these disciples and he does it after his resurrection. Okay, so what did the risen Christ say to his disciples? Here it is. Go, everybody say go. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's a commandment from Jesus to the disciples. And by the way, it's not just to disciples 2,000 years ago. All those people are dead. No, 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 no. It's also a commandment to modern day disciples today. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, we have a new generation and they desperately need Jesus Christ. And so we should be sharing our faith as well. We should be letting our light shine as well. We should be getting out of that salt shaker as well. And so go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And so Jesus, in the context, was talking about Judas's treachery in verses 18 and 19, and now in verse 20, what's he implying? He's implying to everybody at the Last Supper that even though <clears throat> I'm gonna be, be betrayed, that treacherous act is gonna occur, guess what? That's not gonna stop the plan of God. You guys are still gonna be sent. You're still gonna go, and the Great Commission will be fulfilled. Why? Because God is sovereign, and so God is gonna use the betrayal of Judas for his son to get arrested, and then his son to be um, um, suffered. Uh, he would suffer, and then he would be crucified, and then he would die, and then he would be buried, and then he would rise again, and then he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, and you guys tell me, when the sun goes up, who comes down? The Holy Spirit, day of Pentecost, and he would empower these sent disciples to go and proclaim the gospel, which is all about Jesus, to the entire world. And if anybody receives their gospel message, which is all about Jesus, if they receive the Son who sent the disciples, they're also receiving the Father who sent the Son. Look at verse 21 now. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He just comes right out, plain as day, and he says it. And the disciples are shocked. They looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And so right now, everything just goes crazy in the upper room. If it was a quiet environment before, now it's really loud. Why? Because Jesus just said it like it is. One of you guys is gonna betray me. Now think about this. They had been together for about three years. They were all close friends. So imagine, you, imagine your best friend doing this to you, tripping you up betraying you, kicking your feet out from, uh, from underneath you, your best friend. Now, so, so what's going on right now in the upper room? They're all like, what? Is it you, Peter? Is, is it you, Andrew? Is it you, Bartholomew? Okay, things are getting intense in the upper room. Luke told us this, that they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, it's very interesting to me that Judas is not suspected. <laughs> Nobody thinks Judas is gonna betray the Lord, and I'm sure he's trying to conceal his identity right now. How many of you guys know Judas is sweating in the upper room? Judas is nervous at the Last Supper because Jesus had already quoted Psalm 41, verse nine, and said that he who eats my bread around the table here 
lifts up his heel against me. And so Judas knows exactly, right? We already saw it last week in chapter 13 and verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas already knew what he was planning to do. And so when Jesus quotes Psalm 41, nine, Judas is like, oops, like, whoa, I gotta cover this up. And then Jesus comes out and says, one of you is gonna betray me. And you gotta understand, man, Judas is just like, what is just going on? And then people are looking at me. So hey, Matt, phew, how are you doing? Are you gonna betray the Lord? What a hypocrite. He had them all fooled except Jesus. You know how I know for a fact that Judas had them all fooled? They made him the treasurer. He had the money bag. And according to John chapter 12, verse six, he used to steal money from the money bag. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, come on, how much lower can you go than stealing from the church? Stealing from the ministry. Actually, I know something that's lower. If anybody ever does anything in any way, shape, or form to abuse a child, better that a millstone be cast around that person's neck and they drown in the deepest sea, then they offend one of the little ones. Any way, shape, or form. Listen, 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 listen. That is as low as anybody can ever go to hurt one of the kids. But this is pretty low. He's stealing from the ministry. I wonder if the first time he stole, if Judas's conscience bothered him. Yes. Absolutely, everybody has a conscience, whether you're saved or not saved, redeemed or unredeemed, you got a conscience. And so the first time he stole, his conscience was pricked, but then what did he do? He ignored his conscience. Please, ladies and gentlemen, don't ever ignore your conscience. It's a gift from God. But Judas did. Over and over and over again, he just kept ignoring it. And what happens? Eventually, his heart becomes so hard that his conscience becomes seared to the point where now he's ready to uh, betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This guy is something else. You see, what happens is you harden your heart, harden your heart, harden your heart, and then all of a sudden, you can do bad things and it doesn't even bother you anymore. You can see the light of Christ and you can continue to move away from the light and the next thing you know, you're slipping off into darkness. And so my point is, obviously, don't be like Judas. Now what does it say in verse 23? One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, by the way, who is that? You can tell me, shout it out. John, now he's gonna call himself by that description three more times in this gospel. And so I'll deal with that later, but man, I love, I love his confidence. Jesus loves me. Everybody look at me. Jesus loves you. Let it go from here to here. Be like John. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I like that. And so the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him. Simon Peter's apparently at the other end of the table, not within whispering distance. So he motions to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now I already told you that for special meals, the Jews would recline around a low U-shaped table called a triclinium. What I didn't tell you is that they got that custom from the Greeks. It's part of the Hellenistic uh, culture to have these low tables where you would lean on your left elbow and then you would eat with your right hand. And so I want you to picture that again. I had the picture up last week, but just picture it in your mind right now. Jesus is the host. John is on his right. Judas is within arm's reach of Jesus. 
because he gives him a morsel. That's why a lot of commentators I read this week said that Judas was sitting at, was reclining at Jesus's left, which by the way, I found out, is the place of honor, the left. And so what happens here? Well, you got Peter. Everybody knows Peter by now, right? Emotional, impetuous, say what I'm thinking, I don't care what anybody else thinks kind of guy. But the problem is, he's at the other end of the table. And so Peter wants to know right now who has the gall to betray my master. He wants to take him out back somewhere. <laughs> That's Peter, the guy who we're gonna see swings the sword and cuts off the guy's ear, remember that? He wants to beat the snot out of somebody right now, but he can't whisper to Jesus, so what does he do? Peter motions to John, right? And so Peter's like, John's like, Peter's like. And so John is at Jesus' right. They're reclining like this. Jesus is here, I'm John, right? And so what does he do? He leans back into the Lord's bosom and he goes, who is it? <laughs> and Jesus leans down and says in John's ear so no one else can hear, the one I give the morsel to. He dips it and gives it to the guy at the place of honor, Judas. Now, you need to know that Matthew tells us, we don't hear this from John, Matthew tells us that Judas actually looks at Jesus and says, am I gonna betray you? Can you believe this guy? He knows that Jesus knows somebody is, but he, he wants more information. Does Jesus actually know it's me? Am I gonna betray you? And Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, you have said so. Now in that culture, when a host gave a morsel to someone, it was a show of respect. It was a show of friendship. So Judas knows Jesus has called me out, right? Not publicly, but he told John and he, I, he, I know that he knows that I'm going to betray him, and yet he's giving me this morsel as a token of respect and friendship. I think Judas is surprised here. But what does he do? He eats it. He eats the morsel. That leads you to your next point. And that is that Judas received Jesus' morsel, but he refused Jesus' mercy. And by the way, he didn't just refuse Jesus mercy that night. This guy has been hardening his heart for a very long time. Now ladies and gentlemen, I believe in God's sovereignty with all my heart, but I also believe in the free will of man. Both are taught in the Bible and both are true. So hit the, hit the pause button right here and let's just think about how merciful Jesus has been to Judas. We're talking about about three years prior or so, Jesus actually welcomes this guy into his group of disciples. And then what does Jesus do? He begins to pour into Judas day after day, week after week, month after month. They actually become close friends. Judas had an opportunity that millions and billions of people for the last 2,000 years would have loved to have. And Jesus is pouring into him. And not just that, all those months, but now at the Last Supper, what does he do? The king of glory kneels down and he washes the feet of his betrayer. He knows, Jesus knows, he knows it all, that this guy's gonna betray me, yet he washes his feet. Talk about love your enemy. Wow. And then what? Then he gives him the morsel as a token of friendship and a token of respect. And so my point is, why in the world would Jesus be so merciful toward Judas? Ladies and gentlemen, free will of man, here's why. Because Jesus wanted Judas to repent. Je Jesus wanted Judas to believe in him. Judas did not believe he was the Messiah. Judas wanted him to be a militant Messiah, kind of macho man, right? But when Jesus didn't become that brand of Messiah, Judas is like, I'm done. He never believed in Jesus, but Jesus is actually reaching out to Judas. Why? Because he wants 
Judas to repent before something awful happens. But instead of receiving the Lord's mercy, the guy just eats his morsel. And so after this last appeal to his conscience, Judas hardens his heart again. And what he doesn't know is that this will be the last time he hardens his heart. And guess what happens? Something really awful. Look at verse 27. Then, after he had taken the morsel, what's his name? This is not just some little demon or some little imp. This is Lucifer himself. Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so as Judas swallowed the tasty morsel, mmm, that's good, yeah, and he swallows it, all of a sudden he starts to feel really icky inside. It's not indigestion. It's not from the delicacy, it's from the devil. The devil has come into Judas. And the devil is looking through the eyes of Judas right now at Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus looking at Judas and Judas looking at Jesus and it's the devil looking at him? Does anybody think Jesus is afraid of this guy? No, 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 please, give me a break. Jesus is the creator. Lucifer is the creation. And by the way, God didn't make a devil. God made a perfect angel, but through free will choice, the angel became the devil. Jesus looks right at him. What you're gonna do, do quickly. And then it says in verse 28 that no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. You know, they're gonna eat the Passover here in a little while. Oh, you know, we need some more bitter herbs or whatever. Go down and get some more food. Others thought that he was gonna give something to the poor. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was, what's the word there? Night. That's for sure. And it's not just dark outside, it's dark inside of Judas's heart, darker than it's ever been. And so now in verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 31, it says that when he had gone out, Jesus says, all right, so last supper to the other 11. So what you gotta know that Judas got his feet washed, but he did not partake in the last supper. But when he had gone out, Jesus said to the 11 remaining, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in the son, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once, straightway. It's gonna happen really, really soon. And so now that Judas had gone out to betray Jesus, hey, guess what? Everything's gonna fall into place. How many of you guys know God is sovereign, right? And so Judas is gonna betray Jesus and then he's gonna be arrested and then he's gonna be um, beaten and mocked and scorned and he's gonna suffer. Then he's gonna be nailed to a cross. He's gonna die. And then after that, he's gonna be buried. And then after that, he's gonna rise from the dead and he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father where the Son, get this, the Son is gonna be glorified with the Father with the same glory that he, the Son, had before the world was created. So Jesus is looking beyond the valley to the mountaintop of his glorification with the Father. Some of you guys are going in a valley. You're going through a difficult time. I wanna encourage you to hold on to the promises of God, which are like peaks. And you keep thinking about the promises of God and that God will never leave me nor forsake, forsake me and that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And knowing that you're gonna be on the mountaintop in a little while will help you get through that valley. And that's what Jesus is doing right here and right now. And so now he says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you 
you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you that where I am going, you cannot come. Now that statement was more bad news. They already got the bad news that one of them is gonna betray Jesus, but now they get more bad news that I'm gonna go away, guys, and where I'm going, you can't follow. And so now they're really upset. And, and no doubt, they're absolutely thinking this. What? <laughs> where are you going? We've been together for three years. We're so close. How in the world are we gonna make it without you, Jesus? Now here's what you need to know. If you're listening, say amen here. He's gonna tell them the primary way they're gonna make it through without him is gonna be revealed in the next chapter in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. What's the primary way that the disciples are gonna make it without Jesus? Again, when the sun goes up, who comes down? The Spirit of God. That's chapter 14, I can't wait to get there. But the secondary way they're gonna make it is in the very next verse. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so ladies and gentlemen, that is how they're gonna make it. Love. They're gonna make it by love, by loving each other as Christ loved them. It's called community. And that's how we make it too. This is why I'm always encouraging you guys, don't just sit in a row, get in a circle. Why? Because you're not, you're not gonna get to know anybody here usually on Sunday morning. But if you'll get into a circle during the week, then you can love and be loved. You can know and be known. You can pray and be prayed for. You can care and be cared for. You can actually know somebody's name. And so it's community. It's loving as Jesus loved. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus says, a new commandment I give you to love one another. Now, he wasn't implying that the Old Testament never says anything about the importance of love. No, 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 no. The law of Moses is very clear way back 1400 BC. Leviticus 19:18. On the count of three, you guys go ahead and read it. One, two, three, go. All right, so if that's in all of their Bibles, including Jesus' Bible, why did he say he's given them a new command? Well, look at verse 34 a little closer, and we'll find out. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Here it is, sports fans. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The new part is just as I have loved you. That leads us to our next point, and that Jesus' command to love is new in the sense that it caused us to love as he loved. Now, man, this is like, there's no way I can express how monumental this moment right here is. Because what I'm doing as your pastor is I'm addressing the church family. And we're talking about earlier reaching the Treasure Coast with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the way right here. When there's love in the house, you won't be able to keep people away. But when it's us four and no more and everybody's critical and everybody's pharisaical and everybody's gossiping and criticizing and judging each other, the people can't get far enough away. But when there's love in the house, let me tell you something, they will come and more and more and more will come. And so the Lord is saying this. This is what he's saying. Hey guys, 11 disciples around this triclinium at the Last Supper. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. There's a new <clears throat> level of love that I want you to have and I want you to express. Yes, I wanna encourage you to love one another. I'm sorry, um, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's great, keep doing that but take it to another level. Don't just love your neighbor as yourself, love one another as I have loved you. And so the word love there is agapao, which includes fond feelings, but it's way more than that. So I'm gonna define it again, what is love? All right, so I did this last week, but I'm putting it up on the screen again. You know why? It's because our culture 
definitely, vehemently disagrees with that definition of love. But I want you guys to have the true definition of love. Listen, I'm your pastor, I'm here to tell you the truth. And there's the truth. And so let the culture wear their shirts, love is love. Let the culture talk about love is whatever I wanna do, whenever I wanna do it, with whomever I wanna do it. Let them do whatever they wanna do. We'll pray for them and hope to God that they turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. But ladies and gentlemen, that's love. What is love? It's desiring what is good. How do you know what's good and what's bad? How, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? It's right here in the word of God. And so desiring what is good for another person and then performing an action or actions to ensure that good. Jesus loved his disciples, which means that he desired what was good for them. And then he didn't just stop there. Oh, I have these good feelings of desire for you. Well, okay, <clears throat> now what? He performed actions to ensure that good. That's love. And so what primary good did Jesus desire for the disciples and for all of us? Listen, there's lots of things that he desires for your good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning or variation due to change, okay? So, so God has all these things that he wants to bless you with and give you. There's good things. But what is the primary desire that God has for a fallen world, our salvation. That's his desire. And so he desires to save us from the penalty of sin. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the problem, it's our sin. The culture wants to rejoice in sin and celebrate sin and exalt their sin. And by the way, they're doing it louder and in our faces more than ever before. But sin is the problem. The wages of sin is, and Jesus wants to deliver us from the penalty of sin. He wants to deliver us after we're saved from the power of sin. And then he wants us to live, deliver us eventually from the presence of sin. Our justification, sanctification, glorification, that's his desire of good. And so what action does Jesus perform, or actions? Here's what he does. He goes to an old rugged cross, and he bears your sin and my sin, and he pays for them in full. And then he rises from the dead, victorious over sin and death, to prove to everybody that he is the King of kings and that he is the Lord of lords. That's our Lord. That's the lover of our souls. Look at John 15. Greater love, agape, has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. All right, so what does that scream from the screen? <laughs> what does it scream to you guys? Hey, our love needs to be sacrificial. Our love needs to be selfless. And our love has to give. That's what Jesus did for us. That's how Jesus loves us. And he's telling us, I want you to love one another in the same sacrificial, the same selfless, in the same giving kind of way. And if we do that, again, we won't be able to keep people away because love is where it's at. And so Jesus would say to the disciples in the upper room and the disciples at Calvary PSL, he'd say, hey everybody, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So I want you to desire what's actually good for each other and then I want you to start performing certain actions to ensure that good. And make sure that your love is sacrificial and make sure that your love is selfless and make sure that your love is giving toward that person because if you'll have that kind of love in this house, if you'll have that kind of support for one another in this house, and here's what I know. You will make it through your dark days on earth even if I'm in heaven because you have each other. You're committed to each other. See, my concern for the church is that we stop playing church, that we stop going to church and we start being the church, that we start actually serving each other, getting to know one another and loving one another as Jesus loved us. That's the concern. That's what we wanna do. Verse 35. 
Jesus gives us the distinguishing mark of the church. He says, by this, how many people? You tell me. All. all. That's all those people out there that don't know the Lord. By this, what's this? Love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if, it's a big if, you have love for one another. That leads you to your next point. The distinguishing mark of true Christianity is that we love one another as Christ loved us. Ladies and gentlemen, the distinguishing mark of Christianity is not speaking in other tongues. That is not the distinguishing mark of Christianity. And by the way, it's not even the distinguishing mark of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's not. Not everybody has the gift of tongues. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the last verse. It's very clear. And so the distinguishing mark of the Christian church is not speaking in other tongues. It's not having prophetic powers. It's not understanding deep theology. It's not having faith to move mountains. It's not giving all that you have to the poor. It's not giving your body up to be burned and becoming a martyr. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not any of those things because here's what I know, that even if you have all those things as good as they are, even if you got all those things and you don't have love, Paul says you gain nothing at all. Love is where it's at. And so what does love look like? Is it just mushy-gushy feelings inside? No, 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 you hear this all the time at weddings, don't you? Love is patient. Love is kind. Are you patient, are you kind? You're like, yeah, of course. Okay, ask your spouse. <laughs> then you'll get the truth. Does anybody want to be conformed to the image of Christ? Anybody at all? Does anybody at all want to be conformed to the image of Christ? Does anybody want to have the character of Christ developed inside of you? Does anybody want to stop being an apathetic Christian, putting Jesus on the back burner, and actually be a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ who's filled with the Holy Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit? Does anybody want that at all? Okay, so love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, right? Oh, I'm so mad, then you don't even talk to the person for a week. What in the world? Wash their feet, humble yourself, and love them like Christ loved, no matter what they did to you. Jesus washed the feet of his betrayer. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable. Whew, I gotta repent. Not resentful, doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, rejoices with the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's how Christ loves us. Okay, so here's the good news this morning. Almost done, stay with me to the end. Here's the really good news this morning. You can't. Let's close in prayer. No, honestly, you can't, and I can't either. In and of ourselves, we cannot love like Jesus loved. Thank you, Jesus, for the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. Because guess what? The upper room discourse, did I tell you it's coming? I'm looking forward to it. And he's gonna promise to give them a gift, greatest gift of all, the gift of the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, the forgotten person of the Trinity. And ladies and gentlemen, after we're saved and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, what's our next step as a Christian? Our next step is to abide with Jesus Christ, develop a close relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the next step. That's where some of you guys haven't taken that step yet. You're not hanging out with Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. What's the first fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love. Thank you, three of you. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, etc. Okay, so listen to it. 
I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much love, fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. You see why I said you can't? We can't, I can't, you can't, outside of the Holy Spirit, and here's your last point. We need to abide in Christ so that we can be empowered by the Spirit to love as Jesus loved. Now, I'm gonna close with an illustration, but I'm always hesitant because I know that there's no illustration on earth that could ever even come close to describing what it means to be empowered by the Spirit of God. But I'll give my shot. I was thinking about it this week. Being empowered by the Spirit as a Christian is kind of like being empowered by a trainer as an athlete. Okay, so whether you're a pro, whether you're an amateur, or whether you just want to get in shape, if you want to become a better athlete, it helps to have a good trainer. It helps to have someone else other than you who can be there. And so I like to run. And so if you wanna be a better runner, it helps to have a good trainer, why? So that person can encourage you. So that person can inspire you. So that person can guide you by giving you really good advice. And so you want that person to encourage you, right? So that if there's 15 reps to the exercise and you're on number 10, if he's not there or she's not there, Here's what I know, you're done. But if that trainer's there, and they're a good trainer, you're gonna go to 15. Because that person is there to encourage you. And that person is there to inspire you. How? By their example and their passion for success. And if you have a trainer and they're not passionate for success or passionate about what they do, it's time to get a new trainer. Someone who can encourage you, somebody who can inspire you, and somebody who can guide you with the right advice about specific exercises for your specific goals. Or, you know, what kind of food should you incorporate in your diet? What kind of food should you avoid? And so I actually have the blessing of having somebody like this in my life. Somebody who's there and he encourages me and he inspires me and he guides me with all this incredible advice and it's in a certain way, it's kind of like being empowered. And so, again, in a much greater way, guess what? Jesus Christ has not left us as orphans. He knows we can't do this thing called life by ourselves. So he goes up, and the Spirit comes down, and we have the helper. And what does he do for us? Listen, I don't know if the Holy Spirit's living in you or not. But if he is, here's what I know. If you'll abide with Jesus, hang out with Jesus, develop a close relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit is gonna encourage you and he's gonna inspire you and he's gonna give you all this kind of guidance in his word of what to do and what to avoid. And best of all, he's gonna empower you to love people as Jesus loves us. And when you love that way, you're not gonna be able to keep the people away. Do you have the Holy Spirit? You say, what do I gotta do? You need to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit. He'll indwell you until the, he'll see you, seal you to the day of redemption. But then, Paul says, continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Christian. I'll cover all that when we get to the upper room discourse, but let's close this, close this out. Last verses here. I'm just gonna read it and we'll be done. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? That's frustrating, by the way, because Jesus just talked all about love and loving one another as he's loved them, and it's kind of like Peter was completely tuned out. Where are you going, Lord? That's all he could hear. I'm going away, you can't follow. Where are you going, Lord? By the way, that's the frustration sometimes that a pastor feels. When you preach and preach and preach and preach and you know there's people that are just tuning you out. And listen, I can preach till I'm blue in the face 
But until you humble your hearts and open your hearts to the Holy Spirit of God and repent and believe, all my words aren't gonna do anything. It's your choice. Where are you going, Lord? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but, now this is different what he said to the religious leaders earlier, to Peter, you will follow afterward. So where's Peter going, I mean, where's Jesus going? He's going to a cross, and then he's gonna die, and then he's going to rise, he's gonna go back to heaven, and so Peter will get there someday, to heaven. By the way, through a cross, we think himself, an upside down cross. Peter said to him in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Ouch. We'll cover all that later. 